Welcome again. It's no surprise to you that this morning we will be in the book of Ezekiel. We are still in the 11th chapter. We might be in the 11th chapter for one more week. You can proceed there now if you have a Bible. Uh, The Bibles are in front of you in the pew as well. If you open up your Bible to the middle, you'll find the Psalms, and Ezekiel's a few books to the right of that. Uh, And so it's it's rather a a large book, and so um, I trust you'll find it as you go. Um, We're going to begin then with, uh, with the text that's already going to be familiar to you, part of a, a portion of what I preached on last Sunday. And I want to invite you especially to think on something for this Sunday and, and probably the next one as well, and that is the concept of the presence of God, which is something that we talk about quite a lot. And in fact, if you were part of the... Um, Oh, I, I forget precisely what it was called, but it was the, it was the virtual conference that we did here in the sanctuary one evening on, uh, about the persecuted church. And one of the men that we heard from who had uh, served prison time in Turkey for the sake of the gospel uh, was Andrew Brunson. And he talked about how his ministry had been kind of centered around this idea of the presence of God and how it was really something he felt like he lost, as it were, when he was in prison and struggling to get a sense of presence. And so that's, I think, the, the, this portion in Ezekiel talks about the Lord dwelling with his people, being their sanctuary, and, but then at the end of, end of chapter 11, the, the Lord leaves. The, the glory of God finally does depart from the temple. And so you've got God staying, I'll be a sanctuary to them, they'll be my people, and leaving. And, and that's got, that has had me in the last week or two asking a lot of questions about what does it mean for God to sort of stay and leave at the same time? And what, is, what, does, what does most practically does presence of God mean? We, we sang a moment ago from Psalm 107, right? Give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because he's given to us a safe dwelling place. That was in our song. A safe dwelling place. And I want to talk specifically about that dwelling place language that's used in the scriptures. So let's, let's begin by reading this text then. The word of the Lord came to me. So this is, again, is, uh, the prophet Ezekiel hearing from God. Uh, he's, he's watching what's happening in Jerusalem. Son of man, son of Adam, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so those who are still living in Jerusalem, not the exiles, have said, go far from the Lord. To us, this land is given for a possession. I talked to you about this last week. Basically, they're saying, get out. Jerusalem's ours. If you've been exiled, we get to stay. You have to go and stay out. Therefore, thus says the Lord God. Here's what God says about that. Though I remove them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered. I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart, a new spirit I will put within them. I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and so we say, thanks be to God. So the exiles, as I said a moment ago, were told to stay out. 
Basically, you have those who live in Jerusalem. Let's call them the Jerusalemites for our purposes. The Jerusalemites, God's people still in the city, are, are boasting. They're bragging. They're saying, we're the ones who are still here. So, so this land is our land <laughs> and not your land. So get out and stay out. Yet God gives them this astonishing promise in verse 16, right? Verse 16, he says, I have been to them a sanctuary. All those exiles, you're trash talking, and you're saying that because they got kicked out, because hardship has fallen on them, God must be upset with them. He says, I have been their sanctuary. And I talked to you last week about it, what a radical concept that would have been for ancient Jewish people, ancient Israelites. It's hard for them to understand, even hard for them to believe. And the one thing, actually that's not true, not the one thing, but one of the things I want to make sure you grasp this morning is that you'll notice that they, they're talking about Jerusalem and they're talking about the land, okay? I've scattered them to different countries and, and they're in different places. They're dwelling in different lands and, and, and yet I have been to them a sanctuary and really the temple was the only sanctuary. What I wanna, where I want to start this morning is I want to talk to you about the land promises in the Bible, because that's something, especially in the sense of the Old Testament, I don't think we talk about enough. And how do the land promise, how does God make good on the land promises that he's given to his people? Okay? Now, it's, it's real easy for us in the new heavens and the new earth to answer that question, right? Jesus comes back, new heavens and new earth, that's, you know, that's, that's the land of, of God and he owns everything. And that, that's much easier, but what about today and what about now? I want to at least start that conversation with you. So, God tells them that he's been a sanctuary to them. And, and keep in mind, land and temple are inseparable. Land, the land, the, uh, Jerusalem, the temple, it was where God lived. Now, I don't, mean that, I don't mean that the idea that God couldn't be in other places, the, God, the idea that God could be in other places was foreign to Israelites. They would have known that. They would have known he was at least capable of doing that. But for them, it was really hard to imagine, almost impossible to imagine, any idea of the presence of God that wasn't bound up in the land and in the city. But God says that he's going, he has scattered this people, but he's going to gather them, and he says, I'm going to give them the land. I don't think I have that one, but it's the next verse. He says, I'm going to give them the land of Israel. Okay, It's going to be theirs. And it is interesting to think about the reality. Think about this for a moment. If you're a Christian, you believe the Genesis account, you believe that God created land first and people second. Okay? Now, on one level, it's, it's kind of like, well, it had to be that way. How are you going to create people and then where are you going to put them? So yes, it had to be that way. But isn't it, isn't it interesting, think with me for a moment, that the first thing God does in redemptive history is he, he, he makes land and he makes a garden. He... He builds a home, if I can put it that way. And then he creates man and woman, and he puts them there in the middle of it to live there. Actually, he put man there first, and then what was the, kind of one of the first things that the Lord observed? It's not good for the man to be alone. Right? So even though he's in paradise, 
It's still not good for him to be alone. And ever since then, there's been a longing in every human heart for a home. And and I don't necessarily mean a literal house. I mean a place of belonging, a home in the concept of of a place where you belong. I mean, what we just sang about, a safe dwelling place, right? Everyone wants a home. It's because we were never... Uh, well, let me, uh, it's because we were created with home in mind. And so God's people have a promise then that resounds throughout all of Scripture over and over again, Old and New Testament, by the way, and it goes something like this. I'm going to build you a home. You're going to live there with me forever. So let's start probably uh, with the land promise you're most familiar with. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. I'm going to, basically what I'm doing this morning is I'm using this concept of land and sanctuary in Ezekiel to talk about something that I believe, just pastorally, theologically, doesn't get talked about enough. And that is, what do we do with the land promises? I will give a brief plug here. A book that's been very helpful to me in thinking through these things is a book by O. Palmer Robertson, one of my favorite authors, called The Israel of God, uh, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. And so I'm just Going to do. I don't get any money for that. I don't get any royalties for that. Uh, but just wanted to share with you. That's a book that's been helpful to me in some of the things I'm going to talk to you about. All right. So God makes this promise to Abram. The Lord says to Abram, "Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you." Right? God begins his promise to Abraham with a promise of a home, a promise of land. Later on in Genesis, the same idea is uh, repeated again. Genesis 15, 18. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram. The Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land. And we get boundary markers from the river of Egypt to the great river of Euphrates and so on. Okay? God promises a land to Abram. Then that promise gets repeated when we get over to the book of Exodus. That promise gets repeated uh, to Moses and to God's people once more. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Notice that's the same language we just saw in Ezekiel. Okay? It's this idea of Emmanuel, which apparently is connected to the land. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who's brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. So he says, notice the connection. I will be your God. You will be my people. How? How? Or at the very least, how will you know and how will I do that? Because you're coming to live with me. Okay? You're coming to live with me. I'm going to bring you into a land. And we know later on, Tabernacle Temple, God's presence comes to dwell there. So he's saying, I'm going to build you a home, Israel, and you're going to live there with me forever. God repeats this promise to all the people when they're at the edge of this land in the book of Deuteronomy, which means uh, it's a fancy word for second giving of the law, so a, a a repetition of what God has said to them. He says, see, I have set the land before you. Go and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Give it to them and to their offspring after them, right? So this is God making good on his promise. Now, 
Those of you who are, you've been Christians for a while, you know maybe a few things about the Bible, you know there's a difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And in some ways, those two are uh, uh, related to each other. They have a lot of things in common. Uh, theologians call that continuity, things that remain the same. And there's discontinuity, things that are also different. One thing I want to make very clear to you this morning is that we, when we go from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, the promises don't get smaller They get bigger. The promises don't shrink. It's really important we understand this. For instance, in the Old Testament, you might be familiar with this moment in the wilderness, God gives manna to his people. And that, we know from the New Testament, Jesus said, that points forward to the the, God giving him bread from heaven, points forward to the bread of heaven coming down and feeding us with himself. Points forward to Jesus Christ, the bread of life, who doesn't only sustain us day by day in the wilderness, but for all eternity because he feeds us with bread of immortality. You see, it's, it's bigger, it's better, right? At another time in the wilderness, God gave his people water from a rock in the desert. In the new covenant, we're given the water of life, the cup of salvation that doesn't just quench thirst, it quenches Sin, it forgives our sin, quenches our, our idolatry, turns our heart toward the Lord. At another point in the wilderness, God puts this serpent on a pole. He tells Moses to do it. Moses holds it up before the people. It's where the, uh, if you've seen that medical symbol with, uh, with the snake twirling around the pole, that's where it comes from, from this passage in the book of Numbers. Moses holds up the pole. All they have to do is look at it, and they are healed from their venomous snake bites. Centuries later, God would raise up a man and put him on a cross, not a pole, and hold it up before all his people, and we would look up and be saved, not from a snake bite, but from sin and death itself. You see, the promises get bigger, right, in the new covenant. Theologians call these things types and shadows, okay? Think of it as like a blurry outline of of the true and better thing that it's pointing to. And so when these promises reach their new covenant fulfillment, it's not just that it's better, it's almost like the category itself gets exploded. The new covenant fulfillment of water from a rock is not a bigger rock and more water. The new covenant fulfillment of manna is not bigger and more flavorful chunks of manna. The new covenant fulfillment of the snake on the pole is not a bigger snake. You see, fulfillment doesn't mean bigger version. It means spectacular new reality. The old covenant was just a shadow, just a hint, just a whisper of what Jesus Christ would one day shout. All right? So, in the Bible, God promises his people a land. He tells them, I'm going to build you a home. You're going to live there with me forever. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. And when he says, through the prophet Ezekiel, I'm going to give you the land. Let's bring that back up. I'm going to give you the land. Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you. He's saying this to the scattered exiles. I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. What does this mean? Does it mean that the exiles will one day return to Jerusalem, spot on the map, geographical spot on the map, Jerusalem? Yes, and they do. If you'd like to read more about that, 
Uh, book of Ezra, book of Nehemiah. We'll put you in good stead to find out a lot about that. But to be honest, it's kind of just a weak return. W-E-A-K. Just kind of, it, it's, it's not really what we were looking forward to. It's not really the triumphant return to the land. It's kind of like they come back just with their heads low. And a lot of them don't come back at all. And the, 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 the temple and the wall that is built, it's, it's really, it's not even as glorious as what Solomon built. It, the temple they built is smaller. It's, it's an imitation of the former glory. And it's not even really theirs for that long. I mean, they, they've got all kinds of threats to their security. It's, it's really very far from the promises that Ezekiel gives of the security that God's going to give his people. To say nothing of the promises, by the way, and I'm going to do something I've never done before, which is jump way ahead in Ezekiel to show you kind of where he's going with some of these concepts. And that is in chapter 37. He talks about uh, the, the return, the return to the land. Okay, so God's people coming back. What he promised in chapter 11, I'm going to give you the land. But this is how he says the same thing in 37. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. He's got a bunch of dead skeleton bones in front of him. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and I will raise you from your graves, O my people. Do you think that's a new covenant promise? I hope so. (laughs) And I will bring you into the land of Israel. There it is. There's the promise. Open up your graves, bring you back to life bring you into the land of Israel, and you will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I'll put my spirit within you, and you shall live. I will place you on your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord, declares Yahweh. Our text this morning, in chapter 11, talks about the departure of God's glory from the temple. At the end of the book of Ezekiel, he promises one day he's going to return. And what will that return be like? Apparently, it's a return where God himself is going to open up the graves and bring out resurrected men and women into their land. Here's the point. Resurrection and restoration of the land are tied together. Okay? And if that doesn't make sense to you, you don't know why I'm saying it, give me just a moment. Give me just a moment. When God speaks of returning to the land, we should hear Him say, not just, I'm going to make this spot of real estate in the Middle East better and yours. He's saying, I'm going to remake the cosmos. Because when I put you in my land, don't forget, I own everything. God is saying, I'm going to build a home. You're going to live with me forever. I'm going to bring you up out of the grave so you can keep on living with me forever. And what develops as we move into the new covenant, dear saints, is we realize this kingdom is not limited to one territory. This kingdom's not limited to one territory. That should make you say amen. When Jesus is at uh, talking with the Samaritan woman in John 4, uh, an account that many of you are familiar with, he, he, you know that he talks to her 
about living water, and she tries to have a debate with him, a theological debate. Maybe you've heard that. She says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. In other words, listen, what she's asking him is, where does God live? Right? Which land? Which, which land is God's? In which land does God dwell? Does he dwell Uh, where the Samaritans claim or in Jerusalem like the Jews claim. Jesus answers her. He says, believe me, the hour's coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. He goes on. The hour is coming and is now here. Okay? Is now here. Why? Because the presence of God, not just a a spiritual concept, but the actual presence of God is staring her in the face. He says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Meaning, we will gather together, because the Father's calling us in to do this, and worship the invisible God who is spirit, not like the idols of the nations that are, that are made visible with, with statues and, and such. And remember, um, if you remember back in chapter 3 in John, Jesus told Nicodemus that the spirit blows wherever it moves wherever he wishes. Right? So this God who moves wherever he wishes, moves wherever he wishes, is the one that will worship, the one and we'll worship him in spirit, wherever he is, wherever he wishes, and in truth. So, where is God's land? Where is the land that God promised? Where is the new covenant fulfillment of the land? Here it is, brothers and sisters. It's right under your feet. The land that God promised is right under your feet. That's what kingdom of God means. It means God rules wherever his people go. God's people go in obedience to this thing we call the Great Commission, right? Which is not stay in Jerusalem because that's my land. It's go to all the nations and then they will be my land too, right? And so where is God's land? It's wherever his people are. So in some cases, God's land, right? Hopefully in every case in this room, you can say part of God's kingdom and the kingdom of God is my own home because that's where the name of Jesus is confessed. It's where he's prayed to. It's where he's worshipped. It's where insofar as we are able in our flesh, we don't have anything that's opposed to God here. Students, it could be in your school. It could be that God has given to you to know and to love Jesus and in the school where you're in to to, um, to be an ambassador for Christ, as Paul says, to, to witness to others, to show the love and patience of Jesus, to share what he's done uh, with others in your school. It's places where you meet your friends. It's the places where you make new friends as well. That's why the Bible, by the way, speaks very specifically about ministry to orphans. Have you ever thought about that? Ministry to orphans. Why? Because God is building a kingdom and he is particularly drawn to those who have no home. Right? 
And so we have this doctrine of adoption that we believe that God puts us into his family, brings us into his country, as it were, seats us at his table. And that's, that's our new entire identity. And so the Lord says, in the meanwhile, those who have no home, you are to have a particular burden for them. Bring them into mine. We've got some wonderful opportunities before us. I just note parenthetically uh, with some stuff going on with, with, with foster care in central Louisiana. You'll be hearing more about that as we go. Uh, but there are some great opportunities that exist. And they, they don't have to be, you know, everybody becomes a foster parent because that would sound really terrifying. It would be really terrifying. Uh, but ways that we can assist the orphans in our land. And so, and, and, the, and the families who are taking care of them. It's also why the Bible speaks specifically about widows, right? Because their home, their land, is, it's, their home has kind of been split. And they're now needing the family of God to carry some of that burden with them. This is why the Bible speaks often of exiles and, and refugees. Why? Because they're the ones who are looking for a home, Right? That's why the Bible speaks, uh, uses that language of, of exile, refugee, pilgrim, these kinds of things. Um, uh, time, time would fail me to, to talk, um, I'm still going to talk about it a little bit, um, uh, a ministry that, that Barbara Elkins has been able to have, Barbara and Brian have been able to have, uh, those who are uh, asylum seekers who need care um, in between detention, deportation, things like that, a ministry specifically to them. Uh, that Brian and Barbara have been able to participate in. Ask them for more information about that uh, because, well, because they're taking land. <laughs> they're, they're, they're conquering land for Jesus, as it were. This is why we have a school, by the way. It's why we minister to students, many of whom are coming to us from broken homes, from families that have seen enormous difficulty, with no concept of of, of God's design, perhaps, what God wants, what it means to be part of a family, and Jesus means to bring them into his land. And so, I, what I'm trying to get at, and I, I recognize that if you've been at Grace for a while, the kind of sermon I'm preaching this morning is a bit different. Uh, and it's because I, I, I was simply particularly burdened for this concept this week that we don't talk a lot. We talk a lot about how other things get fulfilled. We talk about how sacrifices get fulfilled, uh, circumcision and baptism, Passover and Lord's Supper, all that. We, those conversations are a lot kind of, I think, clearer cut and easier to have than this one. But the idea that I'm trying to, to get at this morning is that every promise of God is yes and amen for us in Jesus Christ. And that includes all that God means to say about the land. Jesus Christ is building a land, if I can put it that way. He's building a kingdom that will extend, He has promised us, to the very ends of the earth. You see how the promise is getting bigger as you move from the old covenant to the new. And in the meanwhile, He has promised us that He's going to do it. That He's going to do it. Go to our next text in John. You remember this one? Where Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. Will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. The promise of Emmanuel that they've been waiting for is brought to them in Jesus. He tells them, I'm going to build you a home. 
you're going to live there with me forever. And so what we are doing here, beloved, every Sunday is we're preaching a gospel so that people might come into the land. Building this kingdom that God has until the ends of the earth. We preach this gospel in order to invite people in to the land. How are they brought in? They're brought in by the word of God and by this thing we call baptism. That's their citizenship. And they enter into the land. And they rejoice with God's people, singing stuff like Psalm 107. And then he continues to feed us and to sustain us while we live in his land. And so we're coming back again and again and again and encouraging one another. He brings us in, he feeds us, he sustains us. Now, I've, I've kind of thrown a lot at you, and I'll, I'll admit, um, with, with less precision than I would have liked, and maybe with, less, with, with more time, I would really want to develop some of these things, because I think I got so excited at the thought of sharing this with you this morning, to think that, like, that our Lord Jesus is not just giving us things to believe, but he's building a kingdom and he's bringing us into his land such that the promises made to Father Abraham are now the ones that we are seeing being fulfilled as this kingdom's not just confined to one spot on a map, but moves out unstoppably. Gates of hell will not prevail into all the nations. Right? And so in the meanwhile, we still wait. We're still waiting, again... The, the, the fulfillment gets even bigger. It's the fulfillment we're seeing now is bigger than what we had in the old covenant. And one day it's going to be even greater still when Jesus returns and every square inch of the cosmos is made obedient to him, delighting in him, rejoicing in him. That's the day that we wait for and the day that we preach and proclaim with great joy at the same time warning all those who reject the Lord Jesus. Saying that this land is becoming more and more his as time goes on. And you will be brought into the land or you will be one day removed from it. And so we plead while there's still time Come in and know the Lord. Come in and know the Lord. Repent of your sin. Delight in the Lord Jesus who has saved you, rescued you, and redeemed you. There's this great uh, hymn. We, we've, we've not sung it before, and I, um, but, but I found, the, I found the, the words for it earlier this week. It's called The Sands of Time Are Sinking. I just want you to listen to this last verse of it. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. And so as we continue on our journey as pilgrims together, seeking Emmanuel's land, My hope and prayer for you is that we'll continue to strive to encourage one another in our hope of that that promise of Jesus, that he's coming to restore all things, that he's coming to bring the promised land to us, the restored creation of everything it was ever meant to be, restoring what was lost and broken in the fall and even more than we imagined possible. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that these great promises 
from you are yes and amen in our Lord Jesus. And so as we wait for the day when all these promises come to their most spectacular, brightest, truest fulfillment, that you would give us patience, that you would encourage our hearts, strengthen our hope, for yours is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever. In Jesus' name, amen.